I want to bring your attention to a man who lived over 150 years ago. His name was Charles Darwin. Charles Darwin was married to a a lady. Uh, As far as we can tell, she was a Christian woman. And she worshiped God. She believed in God. She believed in Jesus Christ. I don't know much more than that, um, but history says she was a Christian woman. Charles Darwin was not quite so much, though he did believe in God and he was following his orthodox Christian faith, but he began to stumble upon this theory called evolution. He began writing um, in this book called On On the Origin of Species. His heart began to create this theory a little bit more uh, solidified, if you will, than it had been. He wasn't the first one who thought of evolution. But here's what happened. His heart began to stray because he realized that, honestly, we don't need God. I'm not going to say he renounced God. There's debate about that. But he did renounce religion. He did renounce Christianity as it's practiced. He said, this is, this is just something that people need. We really don't know who God is. God certainly did not reveal himself through the Bible. And he began to stray further and further from his, what I'll call at least, religious roots. There came a point in his life in, in 1851 in which his oldest daughter, Anne, died. She was 10 years old. She was the apple of his eye, the love of his life. He had taken this book on the origin of species, he had written it, and he had put it on the shelf, and he was not going to publish it. Years and years and years and years. As he worked through the emotion, and I might even say the questions and anger towards God, several years later, he decided to publish the book, 1859, and it is very clear he was not the same man. His heart over the years had begun to stray further and further from God until finally people, when they're evaluating his life, they have no clue whether he was really an atheist because he did talk about God, but it's very possible he was an atheist. Let me fast forward about almost 100 years, a man by the name of Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton in the late 1940s shared the pulpit with Billy Graham as an evangelist. And he went with Billy a number of numerous occasions, sharing the pulpit, preaching the gospel. This man, again, stumbled upon the theory of evolution, realized, you know what, technically, because of all of these theories and, and what seems to be truth, we really don't need God. And this opened a door for him. He began asking a question. As he looked around the world and seeing the suffering in this world, how can an all-powerful, all-loving God allow such incredible and immense and, in his opinion, unjust suffering. And something began stirring in his heart. He, there were questions that were unresolved. He decided to go to seminary. Unfortunately, he went to a seminary that for 20 years had veered off course into liberalism, and many of those professors did not proclaim truth. As he went through seminary, I'm not sure if it was when he was done or while he was in seminary in 1955, his wife died. And that was the stake in the ground. For Charles Templeton, there was no longer God. God was merely a concept to be constructed for our own personal comfort. 
and he left God and for the next 50 plus years wrote books about atheism against Christianity. His heart strayed from God. Now, for each of us in where we're at with God, we struggle, we have questions, and in all honesty, sometimes those questions get so deeply rooted, begins to create confusion, maybe even an anger, like we saw in Charles Simpson and in Charles Darwin, God, why would you allow this suffering? And our heart begins to stray. Now, maybe not to the extent that Darwin or Templeton did, but our heart begins to stray. So my question to you is, it's a rather negative one, honestly, but is your heart straying? Because if it is, I understand that, and God understands that. And I want to let you know, God has a remedy for the straying heart. We actually discover that in Psalm 95. I'm going to encourage you to turn to Psalm 95. Now, you're going to discover as we read through this that the last section is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 3. And the author of Hebrews quotes this, and he offers a remedy to this very same straying heart, this hardened heart. And his answer is encourage one another while it is still called today. Encourage one another. Can I just ask you, before we read Psalm 95, encouragement. I'm going to offer three things that encouragement will do before we get into the sermon today. Three things that, well, before we, jumping ahead of myself here a little bit, give me one moment. Ah, yes, I am jumping ahead of myself just a little bit here. What we see in Hebrews 3 is, he says, look, Sin's deceitfulness, it kind of gets in there and it deceives you. It, it thinks that it offers a solution, a remedy. You look around the world today and this generation truly believes Christianity is wrong and they have discovered the solution and it is not Jesus Christ. Jesus might be just one of the answers that will help us, but by no means is he the only way, truth, and life. No way. And so they reject that, and they're straying from God, and they believe that they have stumbled across a solution. That is sin's deceitfulness. We believe that we've discovered truth when we actually have not. Sin's deceitfulness then begins to harden the heart, the author of Hebrews says. And in hardening our heart, we then begin to have a sinful and unbelieving or doubting heart. And that heart leads us astray. The answer to this straying heart is found in Psalm 95. I'm going to come back to Hebrews 3 and come back to that, but I want us to discover something. I want us to read this before we get into the solution here. I'm going to ask, because I am going to present worship as a solution, but I have a whole lot to say about that, that if worship, if our focus in worship is this solution, you've actually missed worship. Now, right now, you're probably really confused. Then, Pastor Mike, why are you even preaching this? That's why you need to listen, okay? You need to listen, all right? Because we're going to find an irony in this concept of worship that if we're not careful, we can really miss what worship is all about. Let's go. Hebrew, excuse me, Psalm 95. Come, 
Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come. Let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. He had parted the Red Sea within the month. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Big psalm here. We can cover only so much. Today, if you hear his voice, God wants to speak to us. God wants to say, here is the way, walk in it. The question then is, why don't we? The the answer for these people is because their hearts had grown hard. And their hard hearts led them astray. Now, the example is here at Meribah and Massa. Meribah meaning quarreling and Massa meaning testing. This happened in Exodus 17, in which they were about to approach the um, Mount Sinai, That was within one month of witnessing the parting of the Red Sea. The most amazing miracle recorded in the Old Testament, the parting of the Red Sea. Psalmists, authors, uh, Old Testament authors constantly remind the people of Israel of God's parting of the Red Sea. Exodus 15 is a song of worship dedicated to what God did for Israel in the parting of the Red Sea. It's huge. We saw as we went through that, that it actually was a picture of our redemption in Christ. And yet within 30 days, these people's hearts had demonstrated that they were a people constantly going astray. They quarreled, they they tested God. There was something wrong in their hearts. Not, Not all of them, but many of them. So that the author says here, um, he refers to them as you, your fathers. I believe that there is an answer to this hardening straying heart. Now, if you were to look at Hebrews 3, you would discover that he uses this phrase, encourage one another while it is called today. I want you to note the author of Hebrews' answer to the hardening heart is encourage one another. And I'm going to suggest to you that the psalmist here 
offers a solution, and that is worship. I think we're going to see that these two concepts are not too different. But we need to dig into, I don't want this to just be some mental exercise. I don't want you to just walk away saying, well, yeah, I learned this about worship and these facts and so on. And, you know, here's the remedy and such. I mean, this is important as that is. This is far more than just facts. I want us to learn something, but I want the Spirit of God to speak to your heart. It is so easy, church, for sin's deceitfulness to find its crevice and foothold in our heart. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In your, in your anger, do not sin and do not give the devil a foothold. Anger can give the devil a foothold if it's not handled properly. Many other things can as well. So don't be deceived. This straying heart can happen to any of us. It can happen to me. Now, encouraging one another. When we talk about encouragement, let me just look at three things very quickly. What is encouragement? Number one, when you encourage someone, what, what are you actually doing? What, what do you do? What do you offer them? Well, here's what you offer them. You offer them truth. You don't offer them a lie, because though that might be a, a Band-Aid on the problem, they're going to realize that the lie is a lie. They're going to feel disillusioned, and they're going to be angry with you. You share with them the truth. So the first thing that we do is we share with them who God is, that God is loving and powerful and caring and faithful. And when we grasp a hold of these truths, we realize, number one, that we are not straying. We're not going through this problem by ourselves. God is right there by our side, holding our hand, carrying us as the as the poet, as the poem, there we go, uh, footprint says, God carries us during those times. And so we're reminded, we need to be reminded of the truth of who God is. The second thing is we need to be reminded of what God has done for us. And the, the very fact that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead means this. It means that Mike Curtis, who is a sinner, who was in a rebellion against God, who was truly an enemy of God, wasn't just left to his own devices, kicked to the curb and rejected, but God offered me a plan. And by the cross and resurrection, I am now taken as God's enemy and he calls me his friend. Can you believe that? God has not just called me his friend, he's adopted me into his family. He is now my heavenly father. He has given me all of these rights that he gave to his son, Jesus. They're mine. Whether I walk in them completely or not is my choice, but God has birthed me now by his spirit into his family. I am born again. Something's happened to me. I'm not his enemy. I don't have this propensity to just rebel against God, but he's changed my heart. Doesn't mean I don't sin, but he's, he's won me now. He won me, his enemy. And so... <clears throat> This is what we need to be reminded of. This is what God, Jesus, has done for me. And in the midst of my suffering, I know that I will begin to experience. We could get into so much here. We, we, the glories, the sufferings and glories of Christ are now ours as well. You don't just go through suffering and, wow, this is so hard. I mean, whatever, God, but he has a purpose in it to reveal Christ and, and manifest Christ in us. There's always a purpose for suffering. Always a good intention in the heart of God. And then thirdly, what he will do for us. We call these his promises. 
Maybe it's just because I'm getting older. I don't know. But I tell you what, man, do I look forward to heaven. See, that's a promise of God. This life is hard. But what helps me through it, one of those things is the promise that as his enemy, now rescued and a part of his family, I get to spend eternity with him forever. And if you believe in Jesus, that's the promise that he extends to you. You get to spend eternity with him in heaven forever. And don't get me on that subject. I'll preach the next several sermons just on heaven itself. Amazing of what God has in store for us. You will not be playing a little harp as a cherub on a cloud, church. Man, that is a concoction of the devil to make you think that heaven is boring and it is anything but. But you know what? I look forward to heaven. And when I'm going through these trials, I know it's more than this. But one of my encouragements is, you know what, God? Your promise says I have eternal life and that I will be resurrected one day into a new heaven and earth and spend eternity with you forever and ever. And that encourages my heart. So encouragement is found in who God is and what he's done for us and then what he will do for us, his promises. What does the psalmist say? See, the psalmist comes at it from a different angle. He comes at it through the concept of worship. I want to ask you a question. Is this one psalm or is it two? Because to be honest with you, we can look and read through this first section, the first seven verses, and say, man, that is such an amazing worship song. I love this. And then it feels as if he changes gears on us, and he starts talking about the the, the people in Moses' generation and how they strayed from God because their hearts were hard and they grumbled and they tested God. And they eventually, because of an unbelieving heart, did not enter into his rest. The Moses' generation did not. The Joshua generation did. Wow. Whoever wrote this psalm, uh, David, uh, the, Hebrew, the, the author of Hebrews tells us it was David. But... Wow, David, that was a real bummer to lay a trip like that on us. I mean, <clears throat> I was really right with you as far as rejoicing in the Lord and all these amazing things that he's done for us. And you sh they sh I promise them he will never enter my rest. Oh, what a downer, David. Why did you even go there? So I want us to see this connection. Mm. Now, here's my challenge to you. I'm going to ask you, before we get into this connection between worship and the hardened heart. I want to ask you a question. What is worship? What is, why do you worship? I've had people, I think they're unbelievers, tell me, how odd is it that God, who's supposed to be all holy, wants us to worship him? And yet, if we ask others to worship us, that is extreme pride. And this is their conclusion. God is a megalomaniac. God, I mean, it's all about him. And, 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 and there's, there's this string of truth in there that we, but there's an answer. And, and let me just offer you something. See, God is so different than we are. Because he is God, God has absolutely no need. See, God does not need to be worshipped. 
It's not because there's a deficit here and it says, oh, please, please feed me with worship and your applause and your praise. I'm feeling a little down today. That's not God. He comes completely satisfied and yet, church, he asks you to worship him. Now, I'm going to suggest something here, that there is a vast difference between God who has no need and the creation of God, the creatures of God, even the angels, and most certainly us. Because we are his creation, inherently we have need. You see, angels need to worship God. As humans, you need to worship God. Now, you ready for this? Here's the irony of this. You cannot go into worship with your focus being that you have a need. Because worship is all about giving God praise. He is our focus. He is, he is the love of our life. He's the transcendent one. He is the all-consuming. He is the all-fulfilling one. He is everything to us. And this need that I have isn't just some need for food and water. I have that need, but inherently your greatest need is the very need for God, even angels. Their greatest need is for God. He created it that way. I would venture to say he could not have created it any other way. If God created you without need, you too would be God. How scary would that be? And how scary it is when we have need, for God especially, and we deceive ourselves thinking we do not need God. But you see, this did happen. This did happen. God created an angel who was in need of God, and he thought arrogantly, I do not need God. We call him the devil. Lucifer, Satan. Now, here is the interesting thing. Some theologians, maybe many theologians, look at Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And as they look at that, their conclusion is, before Satan fell, he was considered the worship leader of heaven. I'm not going to disagree with that. I'm not sure the evidence is conclusive, but... I think we should, we, it's fair enough to be open to that. Imagine the worship leader of heaven thinking to himself, I do not need God. On stage, you know what? Hey, as I am leading in worship, can you imagine the temptation? Wow, I am a creature in need, and guess what? I am tasting whatever's going on in the angelic assembly that began to make him think arrogantly. I don't need God. As a matter of fact, why don't you begin to worship me? And he fell. And yet today in our world, that's exactly where so many people are. Such desperate need for God, but their conclusion is, I don't need God. The answer is worship. I'm saying it's ironic because if it's true that Satan was the worship leader of heaven, he rejected the very answer to that straying heart, worship. But this is what I'm saying. If we enter worship with our focus being our need, even as simple as, I like this music, so I just want to sing it. I mean, that's, it seems innocent, but 
God invites us to worship, not so that our needs will be met. God invites us to worship him as our focus, worshiping him. Once our focus of worship becomes me and my problems, and you know what, I've, I've, Pastor Mike just preached on it, the solution to a straying heart is worship, so I'm just going to worship, and God will change my heart, and so that's my focus in worship. Then you've missed it. You've missed it. Let me just give you a quick example before I move on. Serving. Why do you serve? Well, at least in part, it's because God commands us to serve one another. But here's an interesting thing about worship, uh, service. Sometimes serving someone benefits me. In the long run, it benefits me. It helps me out. But I believe God commands us to serve one another, at least in part, because there is a need for us to serve. In serving, we are crucifying self. At least we should be. And we are lifting up the needs of others. And this is right and proper. And this is understanding. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I need to serve. But can you imagine this? So, Mike, why did you serve so-and-so? Because um, I needed to. Because in the long run, it's going to benefit me. And it beca serving becomes about me. And in that sense, it's selfish service. Do you see? No. I mean, I mean, honestly, serving will benefit you, will change you, it will impact you, but that can't be your focus. You're not going to serve somebody because of how it will benefit you. You are serving them for one reason, of how it will benefit and serve them. Otherwise, it's selfish service. Same thing with worship. Worship, we are commanded to worship him because he alone is worthy. Go through the book of Revelation. He is worthy. The elders casting their crowns before him. He is worthy. When, when they begin to uh, gather around the throne and the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, seen in the person of Jesus Christ, and he alone is worthy to open the scrolls, why do they worship? Because he alone is worthy. He is the one who purchased men for God. He is worthy. But as we worship, the psalmist is just trying to say, there's something that's going to change in your heart. Just don't make that your goal. Now, do you understand that? I, I, I believe that Francis Chan's sermon was spot on to help us understand we are a selfie generation. We Self-help books are in the top 10 book list in almost any um, on, on almost any bookstore. It's all about how I can be helped. Now, I'm not opposed to self-help books, at least by, by, by the very nature that we, we, these things, these principles can help us. But we are a generation that's consumed in me, going to school to be a better you. Yes, I want to be a better me, whatever that looks like. That's, that's what I want. I want to become a better Mike Curtis. Wow. As we look at this, I want us to see three things in worship. I want us to see the what, the how, and the why. The what is pretty simple. We, we could I could continue to preach on it, but the what is worship. 
The what is worship. The what is extolling and exalting God, lifting him up, magnifying him instead of magnifying my problems, which is my tendency. No, I'm not called to do that. Magnifying my need and my problem. I'm magnifying and extolling God. <laughs> The how. Come, let us sing for joy. I'm not saying that worship is just singing. Uh, my mind escapes me. But I believe it was Abraham. He leaned on his staff and worshiped God. I'm not convinced that he broke out into song. But the cry of his heart was to lift up God. So worship can be spoken. But generally, worship is to music. Generally. Doesn't have to be. Prayer is considered worship. Now, it says here to sing for joy. It says here to shout aloud to the rock. It says to do this with thanksgiving, to do it with music, song. <coughs> it's not just all worship is song. You hear what I'm saying but generally it is. So worship him in song. Psalm 150 talks about worshiping God with stringed instruments, with all kinds, you know, cymbals, percussion, all kinds of music, musical instruments. Worship God with this. We're instructed how to do this. He goes on and he says, come, let us bow down. And then he says, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Now, here's something that's interesting. In our culture today, when we think about worship, worship many times, as far as how we do it, is rooted in, well, how I feel today. Do I want to worship him this way or do I not? Um, and it all has to do with how I'm feeling, how I'm thinking. As a matter of fact, I grew up in a church in which the culture of its worship excluded almost all of this. The culture of the church dictated to me, don't lift your hands. The lifting of hands is not found here. It's found in other Psalms and other places, even in the New Testament, by the way. But I remember when I was 18 years old. For four years, I've been walking with the Lord. Maybe I was 16. I went to a Lamb concert. How many of you ever heard the group called Lamb? Oh, okay. Wow, am I old. But Lamb, back in the 70s, was a Messianic Jewish, it was two guys, duet, uh, excellent in their guitars and their worship songs and such. And, and I remember people beginning to lift their hands, and that, that just made me feel so uncomfortable because I didn't grow up with that experience. Can I just can I let you see something here? Many times our worship is dictated by our church culture, but in a healthy church, it is not. Our worship is dictated to us through the word of God, period. Now, I want you to go back through this psalm. Do you see the words, let us, repeated over and over? It says, let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. Let us come before him with thanksgiving. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. These in the Hebrew are in the imperative. They are not suggestions. They're actually commands. That means that God is saying there is a type of worship, there is a style even of worship, a culture of worship, if you will, that I am commanding. 
And, and, and if it makes you feel better, then view it this way. God is inviting you to worship him. In the Old Testament, he also invited you to worship him with sacrifices. But we do not sacrifice because Christ fulfilled that. And may I challenge you, that the temple, the, the sacrifices, those were fulfilled in Christ. What we read here today is not. They actually then transfer into the New Testament. We can see many of these found in the New Testament. Now, please understand, because of the type of church that I grew up in, I was surrounded by challenges why we don't need to worship this way today. And the most pronounced one was because this is just Jewish culture. Jewish culture says to worship this way, but we're not obligated to do that today. Well, here's my challenge. In all fairness to Scripture, I would say that the only thing that does not transfer into the New Testament is what Christ has fulfilled, and he has not fulfilled these. He's fulfilled sacrifices. He's not fulfilled these. Secondly, if you were to go through the New Testament, why does Paul tell Timothy, who is functioning apostolically in the city of Ephesus, he left him there to do this and set things in order, set in elders, etc. And he says, I want you to tell men everywhere, Jews and Greeks, to lift up holy hands in prayer. Timothy thinks, Paul, ooh, Paul, lifting up holy hands, that's cultural. I'm not going to tell a Gentile to do that. There's no rebuttal here. It is simply because Paul is saying, this is how God desires that you pray or worship, is that every time you've got to pray, well, Lord, Heavenly Father, Dad, don't do that while you're driving. And so, no, obviously not. It is, it is an invitation that our prayer should be characterized like this. And I'm not going to get into the reasons why we could, we could look, you know, is, it a, is this a symbol of surrender? And we could do that. I am saying that this is how God asks us to worship him. As you move into the book of Revelation, here's something else you, you notice. In the book of Revelation, John, in his visions, sees heaven worshiping like this. Church, they are shouting in heaven. Now, their shouting isn't, woohoo, and a lot of ecstatic noise. There's, the, the shouting actually has words, okay? It's not just some random, excited, jubilant, woohoo, but there, is, there are words, hallelujah, and the like. So here's my question. If the style of worship is cultural and it's simply Jewish and it's not necessarily for us today, then why does heaven worship this way in the New Testament? Did heaven look down upon the Jews in the Old Testament and say, you know what? I kind of like the way they do that. I like the shouting of joy. I like the lifting of hands. I like the bowing down and the elders laying, laying prostrate on their face, supine, casting their crowns before God. Did they think, well, I like the way they did it in the Old Testament. I'm going to do it that way. But do you not think that it's the other way around? That The Jews, however it was communicated to them, we don't know, had a picture of how heaven worshiped and said, that's how we will do it. And God says, this is how I want you to worship me, because guess what? That's how we do it here. Now, I'm going to suggest this to us that maybe this type of worship, which is very expressive, and it's not just emotional, okay? 
It is in order. 1 Corinthians 14 says, whatever we do in these assemblies, it's done in order because God is a God of order. This does not suggest disorder. So this is, this is not some hyper-charismatic, super-spiritual, emotional experience. This is God saying, inviting, I want you to worship me this way. Well, God, why? And I'm going to suggest something to you. That when you worship God, other than just standing there, and you do worship him expressively, that there is something, and it's the way you are wired, that begins to allow what you are saying or singing to find its way down into your heart. Because let's face it, and we've all done this, I'm sure. I don't think I'm the only one. You have worshiped and you have not connected your heart with God. You've been angry, and you stayed angry. But can I suggest something? This is just my observation. There were times in Meredith and my early marriage, married life, in which on our way to church, you know where I'm going with this, we got into an argument, and I was angry with her, and I walked into there, and I'm grabbing the kids, and I'm not talking to her, and she's not talking to me, and we start off with worship, and it's like invariably that by the second or third song, God is doing something in our hearts and he's changing that hardened heart in Mike Curtis. And he, he's, he's humbled and he says, God, mm, as I am connecting with you in this worship and declaring these truths and expressing myself in this, because God, I'm doing it not just like this robot or charismatic doll, wind-up doll, but because God, you're worthy of this. You invite me to worship you, and as this happens, God is beginning to change my heart. Now, I haven't gotten to number three yet, because that's a strong element of why how God changes our heart. But I'm going to suggest to you that maybe God has us be expressive because he doesn't just want us to stand there and sing or sit down, which is much more comfortable, isn't it? I'm not opposed to that, but I'm just saying God invites us to engage physically, bowing down, kneeling, shouting aloud, because that impacts us and how we are worshiping. And it makes us be able to, you know, tomorrow morning, uh, just a little test. Tomorrow morning, you're heading off to work. Maybe you're doing dishes, morning dishes. Your kids made a mess. You're cleaning up after them. What starts going through your mind? Now, you might think of something that I said or something that a friend said to you after the service to build you up or as you were being prayed over something that God spoke. You might remember that, and I hope you do. I just know human nature tells me that you're probably going to be singing a song. Do you know why? Because God created, I, he created us so that our soul connects with music and speaking to God in this way and declaring the truths of God, what he has done for us and his promises in this way. And it tends in connecting with us, it does this. It stirs up faith in your heart. It connects us relationally with God. It opens our heart to be able to respond to God and say, you know what, God? Ah, you're right. I, I have been trying this on my own. 
I've been discouraged. And the bottom line is the reason why I'm discouraged is I'm not getting my way. And, and I'm just giving you an example here. And you know what, God, as you're worshiping, you know what, God, I don't want it my way. I want it your way. Because this life, because you're reminded in that song, this life is all about you. And it is not about me. And it's not about all I want and what I'm going to get out of this life. I mean, come on, church. What, 70, 80, 90 years? God bless you if you live that long. And it's all about you, really? It's all about him and serving him and living for him and his kingdom. That's what the life is about. Worship draws us to that. Worship connects us relationally with God. Why? Because he created you with that need. You must worship. We need this church. But, you know, if you make that your focus in worship, it becomes just like selfish service. Now, do you get that? There's an irony built in this concept. We don't worship God because he has some need. He does it because we have need, and that need is him. And he must be the focus of worship. He must be. <laughs> the last thing. And, and The why of worship. We've discovered the what, which is worship, extolling, praising, hallelujah. The second is the how being demonstrative in our worship. And, and, and church, mm. here's what self-focus will do, just on the how. Oh, he is really getting into it, so I need to do that. And we begin to compare ourselves, and worship then becomes about me again. What the, the, wow, we're messed up, church. That's just the bottom. That's all I've got to say. We're messed up. We need God. And even when we're trying to do it right, we do it wrong, right? We'll just compare ourselves. Well, the way he's worshiping makes me feel so uncomfortable. Now, maybe it's because they're just doing something really strange, and I get that. Because sometimes people do operate in the flesh, and they shouldn't, okay? They don't operate. They don't worship the way Scripture asks. I get that. But you know what? When I was 18 years of old, 18 years of age, God just had to deal with my heart. Mike, get over it. This is how I'm inviting you to worship. The, the, the why. If we were to look at verses, and this is the first section. That's our focus right now. The first seven verses are divided up between verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 and 7. If you were to look at verses 3 through 5, what's the first word in verse 5? For, because. Why are you worshiping him in this way? Because. What does he suggest? Because the Lord, Yahweh, is the great God. He's the great king. God is sovereign. If you read through this, it emphasizes him as creator, as the all-powerful one. Why do you worship God? Because he is all-powerful. He is worthy of my worship. I'm going to lift him up. Why? Because he is infinitely more powerful than me. I'm not going to do that because, you know what, God, you can fix my problems. That's why I'm worshiping you. I'm, I'm doing this to kind of beckon you to my problems because you're all powerful and you can fix them. No, it's like selfish service, right? So we worship him. It says it right here because he's the all-powerful one. He's the king. He's sitting on the throne. When you come into a king's presence, what do you do? Do you give him a high five? You bow before the king. You're humbled 
because he, is a, he could, by his own voice, send you to jail, execute you. Now, this God would not, but you know what? We come before him because he is the worthy one as the all-powerful king, supreme. If you were to look at verse 7, it begins the same way, for or because. Why do we bow down? Why do we kneel and worship this amazing God? Because he's the shepherd. He's the one who steps into your life as the faithful, loving God. He's not just all-powerful. Church, he is all-loving. And he cares for you. He's tender. He carries the young. When you're wounded, he doesn't just say, keep up or get left out, buddy. He speaks to you tenderly because he's a God who's not just king on his throne, wanting us to kneel before him, but he is also the loving God. And when we understand who he is as the all-powerful God, the all-loving God, it, it, it affects us. In worship, now I want you to think about what I said concerning encouragement. In worship, we worship God for who he is. <coughs> the all-loving king. <clears throat> Excuse me, the all-powerful king, the all-loving shepherd. We are under his care. And church, he will care for you so well. That's his promise. We worship him for who he is. We worship him for what he has done. Exodus 15, the whole song is about what God did for Israel. And it's very specific and very detailed. Why? To give them a picture of rejoicing calling us back forever of all that God has done for us, delivering us from the power and the slavery of Egypt and the amazing way that he did it. And the same thing with the cross and the resurrection. Our worship songs are focused and, and eventually bring us back to Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection because of what all of that says to you. I am now purchased by the blood of Christ and I belong to him. He is not going to take his very own special possession and reject us. I'm, we I'm wearied by you. You may have had a parent who said those words to you. And I'm so sorry that they did. That was wrong. But your God will never say that to you because that is not his heart. Who God is, is all loving. He is not that. And his promises. And these promises stir up our faith. Worship is about focusing on those promises and declaring those promises. And because he is worthy and he is the keeper of those promises, he's faithful. But we need those promises and we need to be reminded of those promises. And we're going to worship the Lord in just a moment. And I want you to see what, who is God? What is it that he's done for you? What are these precious promises that he extends to you? Because the response on our part then is grasping these promises, apprehending them by faith, and allowing us then to crucify this straying heart and pursue God again. So I'm going to ask you, where is your heart this morning? God is inviting you into this worship time with him in which he is your sole source. He is your everything. 
we are dependent completely upon him. And worship invites us to see that and now look to him, God, you're my everything. This is who you are. This is what you have done for me. I was completely unworthy. You are the worthy one. This is what you have done. You have purchased men for God from every language and tribe and people and nation. This is who you are. And it's promise. Or you will be like kings, it says there in Revelation 5. You will reign on this earth. Hmm. But I want us to now ask, God, where is my heart today? Am I actually tempted with the thought I don't need God? As you're trying to solve the problems of your life, are you allowing God to lead, to direct, to be the source? Are you inviting him in? He's the one who's going to fix it. Can you allow him to do that? Worship says yes, yes, yes. Maybe as you've been going through a hard time, you're discouraged. I've been at a place in which I have gotten angry with God as a pastor. And he has had to call me out of that sin's deceitfulness. And change that heart that's beginning to harden. And to be able to say, yes, God. Mm. Why did I doubt you? Can you stand with me right now? Father, I pray that as a church, a healthy church, we would be a church that worships you. We don't compare ourselves with others. You just invite us into worship of this amazing, all-powerful, all-loving God and who you are to declare your praises for one reason. You are worthy. And as we do that over the next few minutes, would you please, would you please minister to our straying heart and allow faith to rise up, to call us back into this intimacy with you, that invitation. Would you do that, Father? In Jesus' name.